1 Corinthians chapter 5. Read along with me if you would. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up, and if not rather mourned. He who has done this deed might be taken, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are in leaven, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourself the evil person. There are some scriptures we love to read because they're pregnant full of promises of how the Lord loves to bless us. How his love is immeasurable and nothing can separate us from his love. We love to see how he wants us as a church body healthy, fruitful, thriving. But we don't like to see how he wants that to come about sometimes. There are scriptures on the other side that will be demanding. Some are very easy to obey in some senses, in comparison at least. And then there are others that are just downright hard. This is one. Ironically, in a world, we are taught that in any way that you're willing to, to call someone on a wrong in love is unloving. 
to take any form of disciplinary action is even more wrong. Who do you think you are? We don't mind you being the boss as long as you're signing my check. But I don't like you being the boss in any form of discipline. I don't mind you being my father as long as you provide for me, protect me, calm me on those stormy nights when my heart is racing. But don't you dare think of spanking me. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? Who do you think you are? Let's pray. Lord, some days it's like we're here as a locker room, just getting our cues and getting ready to take the field. Some days it's like a mash unit where we come in just kind of a bit more haggard and just looking for that peace and healing. And there are some days, this is the detox ward, where we come in with poisons and then seek to have them eradicated from our spirit. No doubt tonight is detox. Lord, before we even develop this text, remind us just because it offends us does not mean it's wrong. Just because it challenges us does not mean we're right. Just because something stands against desires or appetites does not mean it's contrary to our well-being against us. And tonight, Lord, You are laying before us hard obedience. But one thing I've learned in Scripture about worship, it seems to me that the things you call clearest acts of worship are extreme obedience. It is Abraham laying forth his son. It is Jesus dying on a cross. That you tell us to pick up our cross and follow him. That if we don't take up our cross daily, we shouldn't even play the game of calling ourselves His students. So by the power of your Holy Spirit tonight, speak your truth and love. And give us hearts to receive even the jagged pills for our healing, for our detox. And let tonight be beautiful. May we walk out of here healthy, cleansed, pure, at peace. We commit every second of this time in praying for your power now to manifest. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the beauties of going straight through Scripture is you can't spend 140 weeks on something the Bible doesn't. One of the hard things about Scripture is you can't avoid any text if you go straight through. This is one of those less popular messages among a world 
because it goes right after a particular word that the church was only told to handle in one arena, but flips it to the other. If I were to title this message, I might title it, The God Intolerant to a Leavened Church. You need to recognize you have a tolerant and an intolerant God. And God calls us to imitate him. He calls us to be tolerant to each other in the area of personality. And he puts people of radically varied personalities in the same church for a reason. The outspoken and the subtle. The go-for-it crazy and the fearful. The radical and the meek. The first to speak and the never to speak. The life of the party and the wallflower. But then if you look at Jesus' 12, you kind of have that too. You realize Jesus always seemed to put people together that should kill each other if Jesus weren't there. Nobody hated the Roman government more than a zealot. Because a zealot was, for the most part, a guerrilla terrorist against the Roman Empire. Traditionally, they hung out in groups and called themselves Sakari, which was the knifers. And they would hide behind crags and rocks, wait for a couple Roman soldiers, gang up on them and murder them, taking their stuff and claim victory. But no one did a zealot hate more than a betrayer a traitor. And nobody could be a greater traitor than a Jewish person who had surrendered his Judaism to serve Rome. And nobody could be more clear to that than a tax collector. And yet, Jesus puts a zealot, Simon the Zealot, as one of his twelve, and Matthew the tax collector. And I never read that they try to kill each other. At least in Scripture, you don't read it. But I guarantee you, if Jesus had actually not been there and the two of them had met some other way, things would have looked a little different. Peter the impetuous and Thomas the doubter, Nathaniel the skeptic, John and James, sons of thunder! Doesn't that just sound like guys that stepped out of WWF? We're the sons of thunder! And this is the guys who are going to change the world. The apostle of love is the guy with tape on his fingers and a unitard with a mask on from a luchador match. He knows how to take people of radically different places. I have prayed for this church before I knew that God was going to give it to us. That it would be diverse in every way the world could see, but unified in the area of surrender to Christ. So that people could look and say, what in the world is going on here? And I'd say, you're going to have to go beyond in the world to find the answer. 
And he's told us to tolerate, to actually love each other. And can I just say, love is not a feeling. I believe you love someone the most when you actually serve them and you don't like them because you're not getting the same out of it. I pray to delight in every person who comes through the door. I do pray that. And I pray that I can display it in a way they understand. Because if I can't go beyond tolerating, how are you? How are we going to example that? But he has also told us to be intolerant to impenitent sin. Now please hear me, and I'm going to develop this for just a short moment, and we're going to dive into our text. There are two extremes. On one side, there is the liberal mindset. And in the liberal mindset, sin, shmin, there really isn't. You can just do whatever you want. God's going to take everyone anyways. And in such a case, there is no need for a Savior. And it stands clearly against Scripture. But you can go to places and they'll say, don't ever hear the word sin here. Then what exactly is Jesus' role? On the other side of it, sin is so focused on instead of Jesus that if anyone had ever felt like they'd ever sinned, they felt like they couldn't walk through the door. And there is a radical difference between the persevering and the perpetrator. Please hear me in that. The persevering will admit with you the sin is wrong. By the way, according to Scripture, that's called confession. And they will agree that that should be something eradicated from their lives and will seek help for those things that seem on top of them. On the other side of it, there are those who look at sin and say, oh, come on, I was born this way. I have a right to be this way. This is just who I am. I mean, how many? God only says it 14 times in Scripture. How many times does God have to tell you something? 14 is not enough. It's just a little... It's not really adultery. It's just pornography. It's not really getting drunk. It's just being tipsy. It's not really what? And so Jenny looks and says, it's not really full-blown stage four cancer. It's just a little something to play with. It's not really hep C full-blown. It's just a little bit to inject. What's the big deal? It's not full-blown AIDS. It's just a little HIV in the system. Why are you being so uptight? Can I say that if you love someone, you hate what kills them? Does that sound fair? The reason God hates sin is because he knows what it does to you. It hardens your heart through its deceitfulness and it shuts you down. Paul is currently on his third mission trip. He is in Ephesus where he will be for three years at the school of Tyrannus. He has planted the church five years ago on a mission trip, his last one, the first trip into Europe, where he was for a year and a half in this particular community in Corinth, for where he will leave it in the hand of the elders upon his leaving. 
Now he's been ministering for over 20 years as he writes this. And he says, working our way up to it, listen, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ, listen, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short of no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a church that lacked no spiritual gift, that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in, and they are looking for the rapture. You'd say that was pretty good. He doesn't doubt their salvation. But they're a mess as a church. By verse 11... He starts to tell us a bit of it when he says, It has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. He'll start developing that there's name dropping. You're trying to look impressive to the world and not to Christ. And by chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. This was a church Paul planted. He had been there for years, and now he looks and he goes, what happened to you? I can't even talk to you. I have to talk to you guys like the world. You would understand more if I F-worded it all the time instead of gave you hallelujahs. You'd connect more with that. You'd connect more with movie lines than scriptures, with secular songs than psalms. And he goes, man, I'd love to talk to you. I mean, understand, if you actually, when you fall in love with the Lord, you start looking for people who don't just call themselves Christians. Does that make any sense? If you fall in love with a sport, you don't want to just find the fat slob that actually wants to bark it, but doesn't really want to play. And when you fall in love with the Lord, you don't just look for people that are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. But you want to find those people like, hey, you want to read with me? You want to pray with me? And they look at you like you're from outer space. And you realize that the pond is a whole lot smaller for those that really want to pursue Christ versus not go to hell. Paul looks at these people and understand Paul's in the mission field all over the place. And you know what he's looking for? Fellowship. He's looking for the comfort of fellowship with people that he invested in for years of his life. And he comes back to them and he's like, whoa, we're like not on the same plane at all here. I don't get this. This is not the foundation I laid. This is not the church I remember. Because, you know, I I can't even talk to you guys the way I want to. And imagine thinking you could. And as you start growing, you ever do this? You grow in Christ and you tell people about a movie that you thought was so funny and then you put it on and you're horrified because what was funny before isn't so funny anymore? Because when you've grown, you realize that's really pretty awful. But everyone else is like, that's really funny. And you're like, that's not funny anymore. I had a friend's evangelist, and he loves sharing Jesus. Everywhere he goes, give him a bus, a plane, it doesn't matter. He prays for turbulence because it makes it easier to share Jesus. And, and he went to Disneyland with his wife and his kids. And he went through the small world. He came out of the thing, he was bawling his eyes out. He was a blubbering mess. And the other kids, it's a small world after all. And they're all like, ha, ha, ha. And he's like, no, it's not a small world. It's a world going to hell. Man, he was just a mess. Don't even try to take him on the Matterhorn. Paul says, look, I, I, I tried to speak to you guys. I can't even speak to you the way I really want to speak to you. I had to speak to you, carnal, his babes. 
It's been five years now, and you guys are still infants. You're still with your nappies. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, but now you're not even able. I assumed that after I left, you actually would stay in the Word. I assumed you'd stay in prayer, and I assumed you'd actually grow to the point where you'd start getting things. Now you're still not able. You're still carnal. It's before there's envy, strife, and divisions among you. Aren't you carnal and behaving just like unbelievers? And understand, when Paul starts to speak about this to these guys, this is his pastor. I mean, this is their founding pastor. And as he looks to these people, you could tell his heart is broken. But when he gets to this chapter, Paul's more than just heartbroken. He is in amazement. Paul is actually flabbergasted. At this point, he barely knows. It's it's almost like he barely knows what to say. That's one thing. They go, man. I thought you guys would be. I thought you guys would be a little older now in your faith. You're not. That's really sad. That's a little discouraging. But then you get to this. Now understand. In the Middle East, there's a sense of community. Now that's not the case here. The Western world's all about the individual. You personally achieve. You find your dreams and you achieve them versus you surrender yourself to Christ. But understand, the Bible speaks about a community. And now that's kind of a buzzword among churches. We don't even know what that means yet because we're still consumers. We're trying to figure out how to be all consumers and have a community of consumers. And instead of actually a a community of people all surrendered to God as his children, where he's the boss. But the idea of actually wanting to be a part of something great actually has a pull. Because this doesn't work as much today, and I'll, you'll see why in a moment. It's pretty clear. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality that it is not even named among the Gentiles. He goes, and you know what? The greatest thing is this chapter is not, a, is not primarily about that sin. The biggest issue in this chapter is not that a guy is sleeping with his mom. Now it says a man has his father's wife. You could say, well, maybe that's stepmom. Does it make a difference? Does that make it feel any better to you? He says, and I get the idea, he goes, this is so perverted, even the world wouldn't do this. Could you imagine? It's almost hard for me to fathom what that could be in London. Or for that matter, in the world in general. Can you imagine it's like, Something's happening in the church that the world looks at and goes, ew. Now, please hear me. God wants such a sense of community, such a good sense of family, that nobody wants to leave this. That's the idea. Not because it's a cult or something freaky, but to be honest, just because it's so good. That it's so good. And I'll be honest, I feel that way. I, I am so, I, I wake up every day and it's, I still, it's like, I can't believe that he still, you know, that he does this, you know, that he, that he pays me to stay. And it's like, well, I, I would anyways, I'd start selling organs by this point. But you know, it's like, there's this idea, I can't wait to be with you again and just hang out and just talk about the Lord and grow some more and praise him. Isn't it just wonderful to praise God and throw yourself on the grill and let God just fry you as you're offering yourself as a living sacrifice? It's like, let it burn. And Paul looks at these and goes, do you realize, listen, the biggest sin is not, in this chapter, is not that a guy's sleeping with his mom. But we can all agree, that's intolerable. We should be intolerable to that. Notice what he says, though, after that. Is verse 2, and you're puffed up. That's the problem. And should, and have not rather mourned. 
See, the problem with this church was not just that this guy was sleeping with his mom. The church was bragging about it. We're the church. If you sleep with your mother, we're your church. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 6. It says, your glorying is not good. The word glorying there, for what it's worth, actually means to boast. You're bragging. Check this out. In other words, you guys need to know we are the tolerant church. Now, please hear me in this. Jesus will receive you any way you are, but, in, but by the way, but impenitent, unwilling to change. But he loves you way too much to leave you that way. We've said it before, but please hear me. If we had a marquee, it would say, come as you are, leave as he is. That's the point. And God does want to change you. He wants to change me. He wants to reinvent every one of us. And a church that says, no, we love you because we tolerate anything you want to do doesn't really love you as God defines love. When a person says, I am not for the killing of any living being. We were at a store the other day and a person said that against the killing of all living things. And I said, do, do anyone you know have cancer? Well, what, what would you do with that? Are you okay with letting the cancer kill that person? Sometimes two living things, one has to die for the other to live. I understand I wasn't trying to, you know, pick on their vegan mindset or any of that because that wasn't the attitude. I was trying to use it as an opportunity for the gospel. God had to kill my old man so the new me could live. Paul looks at these people and he's amazed because not just is this man doing this crazy thing, but the reaction was the opposite he expected. If somebody flipped out on sin, how would we respond? Now understand, by the time we're done with this chapter, what becomes evident is this guy is not just doing sin. He himself is letting everyone know how great it is to do it. And the church is bragging about how tolerant they are that this guy, we're so sexually tolerant, you can even have your mother here. But he says, let me tell you what should be. You know what you should have done? You should have cried. And that's the word that he uses. The word for puffed up, for what it's worth, is the word fusiaho. And the word means to blow up or inflate. But the word for mourned, and I love this, the word pentecho, literally means to wail, to grieve. Because you know what should happen when you see somebody put in that sin? It should make you want to cry. And can I tell you, that doesn't feel good, and it does feel good. It feels good because it reminds you that your heart still is open, but it doesn't feel good because it breaks your heart. See, I know that I have a real soft spot for homeless people, and I'll be honest, the reason more than any is because I realize it is a miracle. I'm not one, but not for the grace of God. I should say, but for the grace of God. If it weren't for the grace of God, I would be one. Easily, easily, easily. I was homeless one time in my life already. But by God's grace, he pulled me out of it. 
I wouldn't have made it this far easily. And I look at that. But the problem is, I could look at other people in their sin and forget that, but for the grace of God, that would be me too. Within each of us, like it or not, is a murderer. To some, the sin exaggerates and grows to a place infinitely larger than others. Within the heart of every individual is a sexual deviant. Within the heart of every person is a proud, self-reliant, idolatrous, covetous individual. Because sin in and of itself is what we were all born with. But God did not look to slap a coat of paint on it. He looked to remove it surgically. surgically, And I'm so thankful. And I can tell you, as a person who God has healed of things like cancer, sincerely, I have no interest in going back to that. And when you talk to someone that God has healed of things that tragic and crazy, you don't want a little. You don't want any. I was 10 carrying my mother from room to room. She had turned into a skeleton by that point. This vibrant, beautiful gal had turned into this skeleton with bones and skin, and that's it. And the reason I hated cancer was because I loved my mother. And I watched what it did to her. I watched it eat away at her until all of her life and her fight and her vibrance and her beauty were just haggard and torn and eaten up. And I didn't know Jesus. All I knew was that this person I cared about was being torn apart. The difference between her is that she had no choice. It wasn't like she made a choice. She did smoke, so we can agree that that contributed. But when I watch someone dive into sin, and I know, and I know, and I know, and I know it's doing the same thing to their spirit as I watched cancer do to my mother, it makes me so angry. It's why would you choose this? What is the payoff for that? That somehow it's worth it. When Christ's name used to make your heart skip a beat and now you're fighting to make it look like it means anything at all. Because our hearts get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he looks at this church and he goes, do you realize what you do here? You were inviting cancer into this body. You were inviting AIDS into this body. You were inviting gangrene into this body. Does anyone know how the AIDS virus works? It's brilliant in the worst of ways. Follow me on this. If we were a living organism, a body, on the outskirts of that body in the bloodstream are things called T-cells. T-cells are basically your watchmen on the wall. They're the things that blow the trumpet when a pathogen, a living organism, is introduced into the system. So, 
Shirley's body with Shirley, because that's kind of how that works, is in the underground. As she's at the underground, she grabs the railing, but somebody had sneezed on that railing before that point. And all of a sudden, she starts to cry over someone that she loves, and she wipes her eye, and she's now introduced whatever that was into her eye. And it starts to make its way into her bloodstream. In her bloodstream are T-cells, cells that look at that and they say to the brain, whoa, 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 something's coming in over here. It's not good. Send some antibodies, send the military, get it taken care of, and your body sends stuff to it to fight it. And all of a sudden her nose starts running. She starts to sneeze. And what your body is trying to do is get it out. Lauren completely bathed in in antibacterial hand lotion, but just the same, shakes someone's hand, and before she can make it to the restroom to wash her hands one more time, somehow she picks her nose. (laughs) And there she is, in something introduced. Daniel goes and and says, ooh, raw oyster eating contest. But there are toxins on this particular one, and as he starts to eat it, his body has another way with what you ingest that says, that's toxic, let's remove it right now. Which is never pleasant, but sometimes that's why you get sick, is your body says, that's time to remove it. And if you want to wait, it's not pretty later either. And I'm not trying to be gross, but the idea is your body has ways of quickly removing toxins. Are you with me on that? And your T cells are kind of your watchmen. But this is how an eight cell works. It goes into your bloodstream and actually mirrors and mimics a T cell. And it does such a great job, your body actually thinks it's a T-cell. And then, as that is the case, when that pathogen comes, it's like the watchman's asleep at the watchtower. It's like, come on in, buddy, just take over the body. And that's why people who have AIDS die from things like pneumonia. Because something that your body would have fought right from the onset now has made its way in to infect the entire body. Does that make sense? Would you agree that such a cell is heinous and evil in its context? The idea of something letting in evil things, harmful things, but pretending like it's actually the thing that helps nourish and protect the body. And such is every evil teacher who stands pretending like a Bible that he's actually read it in his hand. So is any person who is not willing to stand on God's word for God's truth. Because sooner or later, you're going to get to the point when you make it up as you go along that you're going to let in something that God said don't let in. And this chapter is a rough one. But please hear me. There is a radical difference between a person, who, again, who is persevering and struggling. Struggling, by the way, I've heard it said, is delayed obedience. The idea that you're trying to, you will admit this is a bad thing. You're not going to tell anybody it was a good thing. This is a bad thing. There is shame involved. And by the way, can I just say this? You say, oh, pastors, they just want you to feel guilty. It's okay to feel guilty if you are guilty, if you can do something with it. What's more wrong is to actually let somebody who is guilty feel like they don't have anything to deal with. 
That's a T cell that is actually not a T cell. Does that make sense? This guy has come in and he is just wild, crazy things he's doing sexually. And as it's the case, the church says, look at love tolerates. Love does not tolerate evil to the body, does it? Hey, but when one part of the body flares up, the rest of the body seeks to actually take care of it. One, one part of the, when one part of your body, your leg hurts, the other leg favors. And when the body struggles, the body should come alongside it in personality. We do that. We love and we come alongside. And I can tell you, man, it's, it is rough because sometimes you know that you're carrying. But in this text, beloved, Paul says you should be weeping over the person. Now, the person who's struggling, we should actually be the ones that, if we know what T-cells do, they actually rally then up the other things to come and help. Does that make sense? It's the things that make platelets that cause a scab on your body. That's the things that make your body heal. Look my fingertip ripped off. It may not look very nice yet, but I'll tell you what, tendons grew back because there were parts of my body that said, hey, 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 we need some repair here. Praise God. And when a brother is struggling and a sister is struggling, there needs to be enough love to say, hey, can I help you with that? And that's what the Bible says. Understand, this should be the first place a person goes when they're struggling. Well, Christ, let's say that. Christ should be the first person. We should be the first place. But it's the last place anyone wants to go when they're struggling. Isn't it true? Who wants to come and eat crow in front of others? But the person that comes in and says, you know what, I was born this way, I have a right to, whatever that thing is. Come on, let's just have some, you know, let's just go out and just have a bunch of beers and let's go out and do this. And I'm not talking about things in moderation. By the way, I don't even address that, but definitely drunkenness is a huge one. And we're going to see that in a moment. He's like, look at, you're going to get to the point here where this thing gets so good, the enemy's going to want to introduce things into this just to muck with it and really pollute it. And he says, there's got to be a point where someone comes in and has no interest whatsoever in God, but God's stuff which we all can get there if we're not careful. But when we come in here, we come in here with the understanding that God wants to change us. And we actually come in knowing that he's going to change things that we actually think are pretty cool at the moment, but God is better. And we have to trust that he has better. Even if he's going to remove stuff that's like, hey, that's my good stuff, God. And God's like, hey, that's not your best stuff. Jesus told us for what it's worth that the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, was like a woman who snuck in and hid three, le- three measures of leaven in the lump. And you know what happened? The whole lump got infected. Now, you say, well, that seems like a cool thing. No, no one sneaks in. This isn't a birthday party. She snuck something in. She hid it because it was bad. Now, leaven's yeast. Now, follow me on this, and this should follow into what we get then, and it really makes sense. The Yeast is something you add to something that would basically be a cracker or a crisp, but then when you add leaven to it, what happens is it makes it much bigger, but it doesn't make it much bigger with more mass. It fills it full of air. But who wants to eat a little crisp when you can have something the size of your head? But you're not getting any more for it. Same amount of mass in both cases. But what yeast does is it decays. And as it decays, it expands. Just like most things when they decay, expand. 
That's one of the reasons why, because yeast is one of the things that grows, for instance, in alcohol. And as that's the case, that's why they couldn't put wine that's changing, for instance, grape juice turning into wine, into something that's inflexible, because it's going to expand because of that. And before we had Passover, we had the time of what we called chametz, or the yeast, literally the sours, but it's translated the yeast. And what we did is we drove it all out of our house. We had no yeast in during the Passover. And the idea is God says, I want it all out. If you really want to see deliverance, you want to see the enemy conquered, and you want to get out of Egypt, well then you need to get the leaven out. Because there's no time for that. There's no time to wait for something to rise and decay when it's time to leave Egypt. And that's rough. But you realize what we all are is we're ex-Egyptian visitors, aliens that are heading to our homeland. And what we have in common is our past and our present and our future. Which one do you think looks the best? And I think we better put our eyes where we should on that. Because we can all fellowship around sin. We have that in common. Listen, Jesus had said, never, by the way, never isn't mentioned in a positive light. Jesus said, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by the way. And that was in Matthew 16, verses 6 through 12, in which case he spoke of their doctrine. And Matthew 8, or sorry, Mark 8, 15, he says, beware of the leaven of Herod. And Luke 12, 1, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, excuse me, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, putting on that mask and being an actor puffs you up. It tells us a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what we're going to be told here is to purge out the whole leaven completely. He says, listen, you should have rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Somebody does something really stupid and there's repentance. God has all kinds of mercy for you. Can I say that? This is what it says in Proverbs. He who seeks to cover their sin will never prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. Not just confess, but forsake. In 1 John, and many of us are familiar with 1.9 because we love it, what we forget is it's written to Christians. Is if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess, homologamos, literally means to let your words be the same as God's. Your reason be the same as his. So you don't just call it a little thing, you call it adultery, you call it fornication, you call it drunkenness, you call it greediness, you call it covetousness. In the end of it all, what God wants is for us to hunger for holiness. We sang it. But please hear me. In Scripture, holiness is always holiness unto, not holiness from. What makes you holy is who you are attached to, not what you are separated from. When God said, Moses, take off these sandals, you're on holy ground, what made it holy? That God was there. What made the things in the tabernacle holy? God was there. What made God's people holy? God was there. And he wants us to be willing to shed everything that would keep us from him.
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're gathered together along with my spirit, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, deliver such a one to Satan. Who wants to do this? Anyone want to volunteer for this? What does that even mean? Right? What does it mean to deliver someone to Satan? In Job chapter 2, Job is speaking with God. And Job says, let me have him. Speaking of Job. You know, God and Job are having, I'm sorry, God and Satan are having a conversation. And saying, he's like, God's like, so what's up? And Satan's like, well, I've been roaming around trying to find someone. And, and you know, they're all, they're all wicked. And, and, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you ever thought, God, if you're in a conversation with Satan, don't bring me up. Have you considered my servant? No, 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 no. And Satan says, and by the way, listen to this, because I think it's the attitude of the world. Satan says, let me at him. He'll curse you to your name. I mean, of course he praises you. Look at how you blessed him. You know the world will do the same. The world looks at you, of course they praise. Look at you guys are first world country. You guys are well-dressed. You're fed. You could say you're starving. You haven't eaten in an hour and a half. You're freezing. You're not freezing. It's 10 degrees outside. With wind chill, 9. That's 9 degrees above freezing. I'm parched. I'm about to die. I better go get a Coke. Right? And the world says, of course you'll praise God. I mean, look at how you're blessed. Well, ironically, because we are his, he blesses us. Satan says, all let me at him. He'll curse you to your name. Curse you to your face. And God goes, okay, listen, in chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. You can't kill him. You can make his life pretty miserable. You can make his life miserable, Satan. I'll give you that. So remember, God plays from eternity. This isn't like God just winning a bet. This isn't like they're both sitting there with cigars and there's like poker chips in between them. And he goes, hey, I'll, I'll put it all in on Job. This is God showing once and for all that when someone belongs to the Lord, someone belongs to the Lord. And Job has some things to work through, by the way. I always think, you know, in the end of it all, it's like, okay, all of his family dies except his wife. You're like, why that? And she says, why don't you just curse God and die? And I'm like, oh, Satan actually kept her alive because she was more, <laughs> she was more useful to alive than dead. Why don't you just curse God? You know, Satan's like, why kill her? She's actually helpful for me. And, and I, I look at that and I realize, and then he brings in all these rotten friends, right? And you realize everything they say is, it's all about you. Think about you. Think about you. Think about you, Job. Think about you. You know, he probably did something wrong, right? Come on, think about it. And Job gets to the point where he gets kind of maneuvered into this place where he feels like he has to defend himself. And he makes it about him. And God finally has to put him back in his place. He's like, Junior, Junior, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where were you when I made everything? Did I actually ask your counsel back then? Where were you when all the angels sang and I created stuff? And I kind of like that because I think God likes to work with music. <laughs> Give me a little background music, angels. Oh, no, 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 cool. I'm going to make a world, you know? I mean, that's kind of fun. <laughs> but listen, Paul practiced what he preached. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul spoke about those who have shipwrecked faith, and he says, uh, or shipwreck other people's faith. He says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul had actually done this before, or at least was doing it. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, don't keep company with him, that he may be ashamed, 
Yet do not count him as an enemy, admonish him as a brother. Now understand, strangely enough, the Bible says shame is actually a tool. But that only can work in a community like Japan, where community is actually fundamental, where you actually think you're part of something from the beginning of it, and you wouldn't want to leave it. The problem with doing this the way that God actually says is, the idea of it is simple. You cannot play both. And that's what that fake T-cell does. It's like, hey, you know what? Play a little of this and play a little of that and everything's cool. And you know what the Christian world does? It says that God's for saving eternally, but the world's for fun until then. So let's go out and get wasted and let's go clubbing and let's go have a little sex. And it's all right because God's a God of grace. What's the difference anyways? He's going to forgive. It's better just to do and ask for forgiveness later than to ask for permission because you know God's going to say no. Then why would you ask? Because you already know what the answer is. But understand, God practices this too. Listen, how many of you have ever gotten a flu jab? Any of you? Okay, great. So that's four of you. Um, Okay, do you know what that is? When you get one of those, do you know how that works? Yeah, but why would you want to be infected with the flu if you want to fight it? Excellent. There's one thing missing. When they inject the cells, they're dead cells. They take the flu cells, the same flu, but they, they kill them first. But what happens is as those cells go into your body, your body starts to figure out how to fight it. Does that make sense? They have specific ways, specific chemicals and so forth that actually work to fight certain things. So your T cells are trying to figure out what part of the army is it, the Navy, the Marines, what do they call to fight it? Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a a lot of cases with the vaccination. Your body permanently develops a way to fight it. That, by the way, is called immunizing yourself, right? Um, Here's the problem. If you inject something in and don't don't allow it to live, you will find a way to resist it. Does that make sense? And you can do that here. You can take the word of God that's being even shared today, and you can agree that it's right. You can agree that's the truth but not be willing to actually let it live in you. And when that happens, guess what? You start inoculating yourself to the truth. And you're doing the same thing. I could do it too. And that becomes the danger. So what happens is, you're like, yeah, I agree. I agree that we shouldn't just be running around having sex with anyone we want. Yeah, but it's just a couple. Do you realize what you just did? You're like, I in theory agree, but my heart doesn't agree with it anymore. And the heart has this terrible way of converting the mind. Have you learned that? We go, you know, I know that's what God says, but I'm going to invent a circumstance that somehow I'm going to salve my conscience and do it anyways. God says we should be ready in season and out of season. We should be ready, but I'm going to put myself in places where I'm completely predisposed to not being ready to serve under any circumstance. And we can do that. Hey, me too. Me too. So this is the way God did it, to give you an idea. There was a nation, Israel, and for God, the greatest toxin would be to have something compete with him for his people. Does that make sense? And the people did something interesting after they left Egypt. They still had this heart for idols, which was the first commandment. God's like, look at before we even start this relationship, imagine this is God sitting down with you and going, before we start this relationship, before we're going to have this love relationship, can I start with this? Y'all can't be players. It's... Just me, and that's it. And that's the first commandment, isn't it? If you think about it. Hey, listen. 
I never asked a girl, honestly, sincerely, I'd never asked a girl out in my life until I was in my 20s. I thought the best thing in my whole life would be, you know, I'm just going to be noble. I'm not going to get near gals, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Anyways. But when I met this particular gal who was working as an assistant to a director for a Christian film and they needed someone to do the soundtrack and there I was kind of being enlisted into that position. And she was very unhappy. She had been through some pretty rough situations as of recent and she was the grounded Christian and I was still pretty much burping my mother's milk in regards to my walk with Christ. And uh, with that, I just was, I, I got consumed with this girl's unhappiness. I, I mean, as, as much as you want to help people, it was like this own weird thing. I'm like, whoa, this, I'm like obsessing. This is strange. And I found myself praying. I'd wake up in the middle. I'd be praying for her all this time. Oh, God. And finally, after a period of time, the Lord says, all right, you know what? You actually should ask her out. And I'm like, here I am. I'm trying to find the Lord. I want the Lord to be everything. And I thought, is this from Satan? What is this, right? This is the craziest thing. And it is such a strange idea. And I'm like, uh, all right, Lord, maybe it's just because it doesn't make sense and I'm obeying you that will be kudos. So I'm going to give it a shot. I've never asked a girl out. There's no place in Scripture that says, this is what you say, right? You know, I'm like, I, it was like, should I have gone to her father and offered him a goat, you know? And so, you know, so I call this girl on the phone and I'm like, hi, Suzanne. Um, th- this is Tony. Hey, Tony. Hey, I was just wondering, uh, would you like to go for a walk on the beach? She goes, No. Okay, now, listen, right? If a guy never asked anyone out, you know what he would say to himself, right? Well, she would have said yes. She would have said yes, right? That was the only time I've ever asked out, right? No. I'm like, okay, maybe she doesn't like... She's like, the beach is cold, and, you know, it's dark and scary. I don't really know you. Okay, I get it. How about a movie? No. Okay, at this point, I realize, I'm like, oh, God, I get it. This was to humble me. I'm actually not going to want to have this gal... This is just a humble thing. Okay, now I'm trying to figure out how to gnaw off my arm and have any shred of dignity to hang up the phone, right? So I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, praise the Lord. God bless you. See you. And my, and my, the phone, this is those old days when you had those phones, remember you held in your hand like this, like barbells. And as I'm hanging up the phone, she goes, hey, 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 hey. You're a nice guy, and I like you. But it's all or nothing. I'm like, what? 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 She goes, look at either this is going to move to marriage or this isn't going to happen at all. We could stay as friends. That's cool. But if you're going to in any way try to make this romantic, it's going to go to marriage. And I'll be honest, I was, I was better with a no. <laughs> Does that make sense? Now I'm like a pubescent boy. My voice is cracking. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. And I'm like, look at um, God just told me to call you and ask you out, Okay. I can use a little help here. I'm just trying to obey him. <laughs> I'll needless to say, no, you know the end of the story. This year, it's 25 years of marriage. Praise the Lord. So somewhere down the line, she said yes. And even when I proposed, I had the ring. And I'm walking. She's like, no way. No way. She was in disbelief. But I'm like, no way is not what I want to hear right now. <laughs> right? But I get this. Imagine it's like, yeah. Some of you girls are taking notes. You should, by the way. Yeah, okay. Especially you sit on the trains and everything's like God told you to sit here, Christian connection. Have you seen that everywhere, right? (laughs) God knew you would sit here and you're going to meet here. Anyways, you know, it's like, well, it's going to be, you know, it's like, hi, nice to meet you. Would you like to pick out a China pattern with me? All right. um, Please, please hear me. 
You say, all right, God, okay, I'll, I'll sniff you out. You know, you're going to want to bless me, whatever. I'm cool with that. Don't want to send me to hell. That's cool. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm, I want to be your only one. And you're like, but I'm single. And God says, so am I. Uh, you want to get engaged? You're like, we're kind of rushing things. God's like, no, 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 we're not. I want you. I didn't die for part of you. I didn't give you part of me. I didn't crucify part of me on the cross. I gave you all. And if I gave you all, I want all. Please hear me on that. That comes the danger, beloved. As when we come in here and we go, oh, I'll have a little idol and I'll have a little of this. You know what God said? He says, I tell you what, why don't you go to where all kinds of idols are? I'm going to send you to Babylon. And in 586 BC, they were on their way to Babylon. You know what that is? That's like Idolville. And they had all the idols they could possibly want and more. And when God brought them back, because that's the whole purpose, that's the whole purpose, you never see another idol again with Israels, with the Israelites. Never again. As a matter of fact, when they, the Roman historians speak about Jerusalem, they say there are actually seven things that are so amazing and unique to Jerusalem. I mean, one is that there's a day of the week nobody works. What's that about? This is a loose paraphrase, of course. Another is this, this giant temple that actually reaches to the sky. That's pretty amazing. And he goes, and the most amazing part about it, it's the only Roman city you can't find in the entire temple, 1.2 million square feet. You can't find at all in the temple a single idol. What's that about? Never seen one like that before. They knew. The idea of handing somebody over to Satan is really quite simply this. Please hear me. If you want to play both fields, please don't anymore. Go out and do what you need to do out there. But the moment you're done with it, the door's open. Please come back then. Anybody want to do that? Don't you feel like you're ripping out your heart and your throat when you do that? But can I just say as a pastor, it's by far the hardest thing I may have ever had to do in my life. But every time it's been done, the person's come back. Now they come back haggard. They come back pretty beat up. And it says here that. It's like you really want to see what Satan has to offer. And you don't want to read Job. You want it firsthand. Please hear me on this. That doesn't have to be you. But if you want to play the game that actually sins cool anyways, can I lovingly tell you, get out but come back. The most beautiful part about this, this is 1 Corinthians. Please hear me. If you came in here and you were infected with something contagious, you would love others not to be here. God says that's what happens with sin. But by 2 Corinthians, listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe, the punishment which is inflicted on this man by the majority was sufficient. What man? This man, we read here. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather now to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Please hear me. God does not say, write him off 
and call him anathema, have nothing to do with him ever again. But you know what the biggest problem is? If you say, you know what, I, I hate to do this, because you know what happens if you do that. Someone's like, who do you think you are? And it's just going to get ugly. You are so judgmental, and you're so, who do you think you are? Super righteous, blah, blah, blah. blah. I'm like, look it, I can tell you this. I am susceptible. Can I say that? I am susceptible to sin. And if I'm susceptible to sin, I don't want to be where it's contagious. And that is not being mean to you. That is loving every other person I would infect in my contagion. And I don't want apathy, indifference, to infect me. I don't want sin, who cares, Jesus, whatever. I don't want that to infect me. Could you imagine how infectious I could be if I spouted that nonsense? And I'm not like, check me out, I'm awesome. But people listen all over the world. That doesn't make me special. Christ makes me special. But the effect would be far-reaching beyond what I could see. And because I love you, I don't want to be infected. You ever go to the doctor's office and say, hey, if you have an infectious disease, go through that door. And I'm thinking, who went through that door before me? Because they're like, look, even among the sick people, you shouldn't be around here because sick people are even more susceptible to getting it. But if you come in, here's the beauty. You come in and you're like, you know, I'm dealing with this thing and I will admit with you, this is sin. Please let me change. God, please let me change. Change me. Isn't that where we're all at? Please hear me on this. And we'll get around to it. Now, please, anyone want to do this? But we all need to. The problem is, could you imagine if someone came in and that's where they were? And I had to say, you know what? I've warned you. I love you. But if that's where you're at, just go and do it until you're done. And then please come back. How many of you would be so angry you'd want to leave the church? And the craziest part is, that it would have been done to love you. Now, I'm not saying that because I have a history of that, I'll be honest, or that that's ever happened that way. I just know that that's what happens. The problem is that person will just get up and go to the next church and infect someone else. And we've seen that. The person that comes in, and by the way, for a person that's supposed to be a leader, if their family is in order, house isn't in order, you don't, you don't play. And a guy came in right at the beginning of the planning of the church in California, and his house was a mess. And I'm like, you know what? With all due respect, I know you've got the greatest and you think you have all these great characteristics and qualities and all of these qualifications. But as far as I'm concerned, until your house is in order, none of this is playing here. You need to know that. That man just got up with his family, left. His wife became a youth, or I'm sorry, his daughter became a youth leader and molested some girls. The husband and wife both wound up suing two different churches, split three churches after that. And you know the sad part about it was? is that they just didn't see it coming because they just needed a youth leader. And one of the people was musical, so that was easy. Just get him under the worship team. They didn't even see whether they were saved. And I'm not trying to pick on those churches. I'm just saying, look, at the reason I say that is that's just what happens. Now listen about it personally so we can close this up because let's face it, this is hard to swallow, but we need, do, you, do anyone, any of you other than me need to hear this? God wants you, listen, 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 and me, to hate our sin, not just the earthly consequences of it. And this becomes the problem, beloved. Please hear me. 
Wife walks in, sees her husband with porn. Husband walks in, sees sees his wife chatting with someone, and it's clearly romantic. And now it's ugly. And they're in my office talking about how horrible this situation is. And they feel, I mean, the weirdness, because for a long time they have this false sense of security, like a bad T-cell. This will never. And what happens is they come in, and she's like, she's going to leave me, he's going to leave me. And they're scared to death of that. The children, what happens if the children find out, what do we, you know? I'm like, do you hate the sin or do you hate what just happened in your house? Because the moment that the earthly consequences lessen, you'll go back to it. It's like, I hate this sin because you know what? I'm drunk in public now and now I'm getting arrested for it and I think I might have a warrant out for my arrest. And then it turns out that the police drop the charges and back you go to the bottle. God does not want you to hate your earthly circumstances and that's all that in regards to the extent of your sin. God wants to hate. God wants you to hate your sin because what it does between you and him. Because when that's the case, there's a difference. You won't want to do it. Because no matter the first time you sin, it's going to do that. It makes your relationship suffer. Hey, the first time a guy starts looking that way, the first time the girl starts chatting like that, it immediately destroys the relationship between them. They learn how to put on the face, which, by the way, again, is being a hypocrite. They learn how to act. They learn how to pretend. They learn how to make it look like everything's all hunky-dory. But let's be honest, in the end, he's lying, she's lying, and that is something between them. Just like Adam and Eve, after sin was introduced, they looked and realized, we better cover up some stuff in between us because I don't want you seeing all this anymore. See how that works? And he's in the corner, online gambling, and he knows she hates it. And she's in the corner buying things that she knows she shouldn't be doing and it's nowhere near what, what God wants and she, and she knows she can't tell her husband. And she's saying things to her friends that she should never say and he's looking at someone he should never be looking at and all of a sudden, it's like the two people are in the same room but there is a world that they're both hiding by this point. And man, what, you, you realize, man, the moment you pull the lid off of that thing, it's like a jack-in-the-box. It's like, right? And it explodes on both sides like volcanoes. Please hear me, beloved. You don't have to do that with the Lord. You're like, well, why does God want me to confess? Hasn't he forgiven all my sin? He wants you to admit it's still wrong. So your heart can hear you say it. So my heart can hear me say, that's what it is now. It's bitterness. It's anger. It's whatever it is. He goes, you know what? If someone wants to just play that fake T-cell... Let them go out and get all they want and when they're done. But please, 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 this is what it said in Second Corinthians. That guy came back. Did you see that? That guy came back. And when that guy came back, I think he came back without mom. And he goes, can I just say three things on this? And we're almost done, but please hear me on this because this is the training we need on the other side of it. The problem with the moment of actually saying you need to go is that you forget that they come back. And you'd think that that moment's the only moment. And let's face it, a relationship gets severed. That's like death. But God resurrects Lazarus for a reason. You know what it says? Look at there's three things. And please read this with me. If you can get to Second Corinthians, would you turn there, please? Do you realize what we're all... You, do, you know what's happening in this room right now? Can I just say this? We're growing up. Spiritually, we're growing up with this. Do you realize that? Because kids don't do this stuff. Listen to this again. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, 
but all of you to some extent, not too severe, not to be too severe. The punishment that was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So now that, on the contrary, you ought to rather, ready? Here's the first. Can you say, one, forgive. Okay, do that with me. One, forgive. forgive. Two, comfort. comfort. Notice that word that's there. And literally the word is like, you know, parakalejo, the way to come alongside an individual like that. And then the third, notice it says then, reaffirm. Say number three, reaffirm. Okay, number one, forgive. Two, comfort. Three, reaffirm. Okay, this is the way it works. First of all, to listen, to forgive literally means to cast away and leave. So whatever that person was doing now, you're casting away. I'm, and if I'm casting it and abandoning it, I can't bring it up anymore. It's done. I'm not going to look at you as the drug addict anymore, as the prostitute. I'm not going to look at you anymore as the person who went back into your crack or the person that went back into that sexual relationship or the whatever the case, because I'm going to forgive that too. Oh, Jesus did the forgiveness. I just need to cast it out of me so it's not going to be between us. Does that make sense? But the problem is, let's face it, if that were you and you came back in here, which one of you actually would want to just sit next to the next person and pretend like it didn't happen? You know what they're going to need? Is we need to make the conscious effort to get beside them now. Does that make sense? The person comes in and they're standing at the door and it's like, man, they're scared to death. And they, they, you know, that's the way it works. Their heart is pounding and they think they're going to pass out. And all of a sudden, somebody walks up and says, welcome home. Because they're not going to just try to make themselves at home at that moment. The last place they're going to want to go is the church they left. Isn't that true? But it says not only that, then you reaffirm your love for them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wrap my arms around you. And you know who I learned that from? The father of the prodigal son. The moment that son started turning back, he ran after him and he killed the fatted calf and he says, here's my robe and my ring. You don't have shoes anymore, boy. Take my shoes. The problem is the father would have looked at as unloving because he'd let his son have his stuff and leave. The father knew where he was going. Please hear me on this because here's the, the argument. Yeah, but if you do that, they'll walk away from God. Hello, they're not with the Lord right now. They just think they are. Yeah, but you'll lose a friend. What if you lose a friend? You're not being a friend if you let them be that way. Sure, let them die in their AIDS. Sure, let them die with a car crash like that. Let them walk around like that and get themselves to blown to bits. That's not being a friend. But that's what you'll hear. You know, the enemy will be the one telling you that. Oh, but if you do that, you're not being a friend. Oh, if you do that, what if they never come back? Hey, can I just say, they're not with you right now. Hey, when that son asked his father for inheritance, he was already in the prodigal land. He just wasn't standing there yet. Does that make sense? You know, I've sat with an individual... And it's like they did all their investigation about what prostitute they were going to find. They did all the work they possibly could. I mean, it was like almost flowcharts and graphs. They were already doing it before they did it. And a person says, and you have to tell them, look, you know what? You are not where you need to be. How dare you tell me that? Oh, no, 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 no. How do you, who are you to judge? Bro, your lifestyle. And here's the great thing. You don't even have to finish the conversation, open up this chapter, and tell him that one of the two of you wants to obey right now. Could it, could, could it be both? 
You go, you think it's hard for you to obey. Listen to what I have to obey. Read this chapter with me. Do you think I want to do this? I just know this is the only way that you'll actually ever detox and come right. So let's get to the list and we'll close this up. Now Paul then moves on to that. And he'll say, by the way, listen, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven. Does that sound familiar? Like the Passover. That you may be a new lump, for truly you are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed with us. Therefore let us keep the feast. Not about the old leaven. If we're going to celebrate freedom, if we're going to celebrate the conquering of the enemy, isn't that what Passover is about? If we're going to celebrate freedom and conquering of the enemy, then we certainly want to do it for real with no leaven. So let's purge out the leaven of malice and wickedness as well and live it with the real bread of sincerity and truth. And then he says, I wrote in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Certainly that did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world. It's like, oh, look, at I can't hang out with sinners. That's not what he's saying. Now understand, there's a difference between a person who commits a sin and a person who makes it a lifestyle. And he goes, hey, you want to hang out with people? And I told you not to hang out with people that have chosen to make sin their lifestyle. He goes, you'd have to move to Venus. You'd have to go and live in a cave. He goes, look it, don't be surprised that the world's willing to sin. That's what they live for right now. And I've heard it said, we shouldn't be surprised that sinners are willing to sin. We should just be shocked that saints aren't willing to be holy. Verse 11, but I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. And there was a list here now of six things. And here's the six. First of all, who's sexually immoral. The word's pornos. Any sex outside of a man or a woman in marriage, God calls sexually immoral. Pornos, same word we get pornography from. Any sex, sexual relationship outside of committed male and female marriage as God defines marriage, God calls immoral. Which, by the way, drives me mental on the trains right now. I can handle all the others. This guy, one of these two is gay, one of these two is whatever. If you still have a problem with it, our work's not done until I see the two in the collar. It's like you have no right to tell people who are supposed to represent God what's right and wrong. You know what that tells me? My work is not done. Our work is not done. In the church. Sexually immoral. Is that your lifestyle? Are you persevering or are you perpetrating? I've heard of a story where a man back in one of the churches down in Southern California said that the greatest thing you could do is listen to to worship music and have sex with them. And by the way, he was pretty open to either side of that. What do you do with a guy like that? You hand him over to Satan until they're willing to, to, to change. To admit it was wrong. Second, covetous. The word for its worth is it simply means eager for gain, that all they want is to get, 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 get. The problem is you can go to churches and actually be a covetous church. And yet what God said is don't even eat with a person that that's what they're all about, is getting, 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 getting more. That's their life. The third word is idolater, and that's anything that you would worship outside of God. By the way, you realize that includes... One Direction, football, anything else. And we, also, and we even use the terms, right? It's an American idol. It's 
British idol. It's, you know, it's idolizing someone. Then we get this word. Reviler, drunkard, and extortioner. Reviler is a person who causes mischief. That's what the term is. Ledoros. The idea of somebody who lives to make other people's lives worse. It's the same word, by the way, of used of an abusive individual. Your lifestyle is one that abuses others. The word for drunkard, by the way, and you think, well, that's okay. I don't drink. I just smoke marijuana. The word there is methusas, and the word means tipsy. Don't even tell me. Huff and glue, 65 Red Bulls. If you're getting tipsy from it, it's this. The question is, is it your lifestyle, and could you give a rip to not change? If you've got an issue with this, let's take it to the Lord tonight. Wouldn't it be great if we walked out of here pure and clean? If some of us, it's like we want to want it. Does that make sense? It's like you get you go from wanting to not do it anymore to wanting to want to not do it anymore. It's like you get so hardened, you just so oh, just it'll always just be. No, it won't always be. God knows. And the last term, extortioner, literally is somebody who seizes upon things. They're the opportunist that seizes upon people and things for their own benefit. And that could be a church just as much as a person if we're not careful. But let me remind you, all churches is people. You're only as good as your source material. If everybody sounds like you're choking a goose to death, you're not going to have a beautiful choir. Now, the scary thing is, if we look at this list, is there any one of us here that actually says, actually, I'm completely free from any and all of these sins? Let me ask you something, and this is a verbal quiz. It's only six questions. Are you willing to agree with me that sexual immorality is wrong? Yes or no? Okay, let's see if we can get all of you to respond. Are you willing to admit with me that covetousness is wrong? Yes. Are you willing to admit with me, by with me that means I agree with you, that idolatry, worshiping anything but God is wrong? Yes. That could be my kids. It could be my wife. Are you willing to agree with me that being abusive is wrong? Yes. Are you willing to agree with me that a lifestyle that is tipsy is wrong. Yes. Are you willing to agree with me that a life that lives to seize upon others, suck from others, and take from others instead of give and give is wrong? Yes. Well, I guess we're okay. If that's, if you yesed with me. But could you imagine saying, bro, we can't even eat until you get this worked out. Well, I'm struggling. Okay, Can we start with this? Can we start by agreeing this is wrong? Now, can we pray that we would hate the eternal consequences of this more than just the temporary ones? What this does between you and God versus just what this does. He says, what do I have to do with those that are outside? I'm not going to judge the world. That's not my job. He goes, but hey, this church was planted. I should have a right to have some say in it. And as I'm following the Lord in this, look at it. It says, therefore, those who are outside, let God judge that. Put, put away this evil person. The word evil, and this is how it ends, literally means harmful. It isn't that you just go, ew, evil, because we're all naturally bent on our evil. But God has to slay that. 
He goes, but could you get rid of the, the contagious infected individual until they're willing to admit that they need to be cured of it? He said, it's a little measles. What's the big deal? Come on in. Come on in. So you have that horrible vomiting flu. Come on in. Cough all over everyone. That's beautiful. Because we take everyone in. So you have a problem with molesting children. Come on in. We don't need to watch you. Hey, by the way, we have let people in with a history for those things, but they come in always, and they're willing to admit that that's a problem, and they come in escorted. And they don't walk around. They're always escorted because we want everybody to find Jesus. But they have to start by admitting to us that it's wrong, and they're willing then to put up whatever is necessary to never commit that again. Does that make sense? We do that when we see couples restored because someone's done something really stupid because they think about the momentary payoff instead of the lifetime of shame that it covers. You say, well, are you willing to do everything that is necessary to pad yourself to never, ever do that again? Because the moment you start easing up on those things, you watch what happens. You already have an appetite for it. Beloved, I recognize that what was said tonight was not easy to hear. It's even harder to say but that doesn't make it not true. Please understand, the reason God wants this is because he loves you and he loves me and he doesn't want you dying on the vine because somehow you have a false sense of security. That is the cruelest act of non-love that anyone could give. It's just like that T-cell, a foolish, false sense of safety. And what this chapter does is it just rinsed out and eradicated all of the AIDS cells. It just DHIV'd the body is what had just happened. Do you realize that? And if you talk to somebody dying of AIDS and you ask them, hey, if your body could be completely purged today from HIV, would you want that? You'd be almost foolish to ask. But can I say as a body... Do we want that purged from us? Hey, we may not be able to change the world out there. At least God can do that. That's his work. But we have a choice right now in regards to this. And that's what I want. Please, 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 for the love of God, please let God purge. You'll be thankful you did. The cross paid for it all to show that who we were died. The resurrection proved that not only did the blood cleanse us, but there's a new us on the other side of the cross. Have you accepted that gift of Jesus? That's where it starts. Because it says there your passions were crucified. There, sin as your master was crucified. There, your judgment was crucified. There, your guilty verdict was crucified. But the death was half the story. The resurrection is the part that we live now. Why would we want to go back to the other side of the cross? You have been cured. you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much. And I wouldn't doubt even tonight there will be challenges and temptations, but may we tonight first start by confessing before we would do the sin, God, this sin is wrong. 
purge me from the appetite for it. Transform me now. Make me a man after your own heart, a woman after your own heart. God, please, don't let my lifestyle, don't let my heart get so calloused that I would continue to live in a sin with my conscience seared as if a hot iron. But rather, Lord, tonight, drive the AIDS cells, the HIV cells, out of every one of our spirits that somehow would allow that which was detrimental to our bodies spiritually, to this body or to any. This is your body. Why would we want to interject such harm, such cancer, such gangrene into your body, Jesus? And so, Lord, we pray tonight for a fresh purging, a fresh hatred for the sin, not just for its earthly consequences, a fresh purging of bad appetites, a fresh honesty and humility. And tonight, Lord, let's walk out of here free because we can't celebrate freedom and then run back into our bondage like this and somehow say the bondage is okay, but we left Egypt when we didn't. Even Pharaoh said, why don't you just do it here? Thank you that you took us out of Egypt to worship you. Now take Egypt out of us and make us the people that you reinvented us to be. Jesus, we confess your death on the cross as the payment for all of our shame so that any guilt we experience, Lord, any shame we now give to you and say, by, the, by your blood, cleanse us. But your resurrection shows we don't have to live that life anymore. And I thank you, Lord, that though sin has been evicted from us as the permanent resident, it still wants to come and visit. Forgive us for where we give it shelter. But we invite you right now to re-evict anything in our lives that somehow has put a couch in there and made itself at home. We sever, Lord, our uncircumcised hearts. And we ignite the flame, Lord, that burns hot for you. That we would never have to be the person you do this to. Or that we do to you, like you standing at the door and knocking for a church that's kicked you out. Oh God, please, tonight, set us free to praise you the way you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.